Hello, this is Radio Clockamel, 666FM. It's 13 o'clock. I'm the Clockamel Kid, and I'm wondering, are you an introvert or an extrovert? I recently asked friends this question. Thank you to everybody who replied, by the way. You might be interested to know, as I was, that introverts outnumbered extroverts by about eight to one. There's nothing necessarily significant about that. It might be just that most people I know are introverts. Or maybe the extroverts were out doing things rather than replying to emails. Of the extroverts who did reply, some seemed strangely shy about it. Sarah said she was an extrovert despite being a librarian. I like that. I consider myself to be an introvert. Of course, I've trod the boards of theatres and never been averse to a bit of boastful swaggery in the music halls of the world. So many might consider me to be an extrovert. And many might consider you to be an introvert, even though you consider yourself to be an extrovert. So who's right, us or them? Now, the reason I'm saying all this stuff is because today I'm going to tell you a story. And it's a story about one of the greatest introverts that ever lived in London. And I'm also going to reveal something at the end which may change the course of literary history. Sound good? Good. Well, come on then. Put your hat on, grab your coat. Let's take a walk down Clockamore Road. Now, if we walk along Clockamore Road to Old Street and then turn right into the labyrinth of streets to the south, we can see ahead of us the 1960s, 1970s towers of the Barbican Centre. But the Barbican Centre is built on the ghosts of a previous city. The street that we're walking down was once called Grub Street, and it led to somewhere called Cripplegate. Cripplegate was one of the several gates in the old city wall. If you ever hear the financial district of London referred to just as the city or the square mile, they're talking about the area beyond that wall the area of the old Roman city. Now, as we walk down the street, we can imagine that time is starting to unwind around us. The new buildings are disappearing and replaced by older buildings. And as we pass through the Victorian age, everything starts to change. Grub Street itself, until the early 19th century, was famous for a concentration of impoverished hack writers, aspiring poets, low-end publishers and booksellers. I bet they were all introverts. But there were extroverts too. I mean, it was a place of entertainment, bohemian society, brothels and coffee houses. But as we go back even further, we can almost hear the noises start to change. There's no traffic anymore. But we'll hear the bellowing of animals, the cries of street traders and costermongers, and we will be assailed by a terrible stench. The reek of animals, of rotting food, of unwashed human. The further back we go in time, the smellier it gets. Shit, death, awful. Now, if we'd been passing this way towards the end of the 16th century or the beginning of the 17th, we might spy up ahead a little old lady bustling along, avoiding the nerdy wells, the rascals lounging and smoking in doorways. She's carrying a basket, a full basket. And as we follow her, 
we notice that she's heading towards a large house at the bottom end of Grub Street, not far from Cripplegate. Let's imagine that as she looks from side to side, takes out a key, opens the front door and steps inside, that we are invisible ghosts who can follow her in. Inside, she heads for the staircase, climbs to the first floor and enters a room, a room that is simply furnished with a large table, a chair, a few implements. She sets her basket on the table and unloads its contents. Some very simple food, vegetables, oats, maybe a little milk, and there are some books. She sets the provisions out on the table and next to them, she places the books. Then she looks around and backs out of the door again, closing it behind her, but stands there, listening. A few moments after she's retreated, another door in the room opens a crack, and from it protrudes a long nose. The long nose is followed by a very hairy head, and the hairy head sits atop a tall, thin body. They all belong to a figure who peers around the room to check there's no one there, and then steps in, goes to the table, sits down, makes a simple meal of the provisions left there, and looks eagerly through the books. He sets some aside, takes a couple of others, and when he's finished his meal, retreats back into the room where he came from. As he closes the door behind him, the old lady listens and re-enters the room, clears away all food that's left over, takes away the books that were left, tidies up, and then leaves again. This mysterious scene was repeated day after day, week after week, month after month, year upon year, decade after decade, for 44 years. Who was the little old lady? And who was the strange man hiding in secret behind his locked door in the house on Grub Street? Before I tell you that, I'd like to define some terms. What is an introvert? Well, I think most of us would see it as a shy, rather reticent person, an inward-looking person. What about a loner? That's just somebody who likes to spend time alone, though it sounds a little bit judgmental. What about a recluse? That's someone who hides away so that they can avoid people. And what about a sociopath? That apparently is a person with a personality disorder, manifesting itself in extreme antisocial attitudes and behaviour. Now, what about an agoraphobe, a person with extreme or irrational fear of being in the open or public places? And of course, there are people who choose to be sequestered away for religious reasons. At this time in London, you may have come across an anchorite if you peered through a grill low in a church wall. These were people who locked themselves away, were walled up, in tiny cells for years upon years, praying, contemplating God, voluntarily enduring a hellish life in the hope of a heavenly afterlife. Now, the mysterious man that we met earlier wasn't an anchorite, but he was regarded as being religious, a recluse, a hermit. 
the Hermit of Grub Street, Mr. Henry Welby. But nobody's born a hermit, so how did Henry Welby become one? Well, he was a native of Lincolnshire, which is north of London. And there he had an estate, a large house, lands, farms, property, which brought in over £1,000 a year. Now, that might not seem very much now, but at the end of the 16th century, it was a fortune. He was a rich man. He was also said to possess, to an eminent degree, the qualifications of a gentleman. He'd spent time at university and studying law in London, and he'd completed his education by making a tour of the cultural hotspots of Europe. So he was a civilized man. He was also said to be happy in the love and esteem of his friends and his family. He was married with a daughter who he loved dearly. And indeed, all that knew him said his heart was warm and his virtues were obvious. He was very generous. He engaged in many acts of humanity, benevolence and charity. In other words, Henry Welby was a happy, wealthy and very nice person living a wonderful life. But something happened. In 1592, around about the time he was 40, he was out walking after church one day when he bumped into his brother in the fields. They had a huge argument, and his brother, despite being a church minister, was described as an abandoned profligate with all sorts of vices and sins. Well, it wouldn't be the first time a priest has got the advice, would it? Now, it seems they had a huge argument about money. His brother, being the younger son, had not inherited the family estate that Henry had and was obviously angry about this. And this was an argument they'd had before. But on this occasion, it seems to have escalated and his brother drew a pistol, which went off or possibly he fired it. However, Henry managed to wrest it from his hands and take it away and fled back to his house where it's assumed he believed that his brother had just intended to frighten him. But when the pistol was opened, he found that it contained two bullets. So he realized that his brother, in fact, had attempted to murder him. Oh dear. This incident had such a calamitous effect upon him that he immediately resolved that he would have no more contact with human beings. And in fact, that night, He had a horse saddled and rode for London without even leaving a letter for his family or friends and vowed to live the life of a hermit. He bought a property on Grub Street and retired into solitude and silence and study like St. Jerome of old, served only by an old woman called Elizabeth. And it is said that he saw no other human creatures And only Elizabeth herself saw him rarely or in cases of utmost urgency. His diet was bread and water, gruel, porridge we would say, milk and vegetables. And occasionally when he indulged himself, when perhaps he felt a bit frivolous, maybe on his birthday or on Elizabeth's birthday, he'd let his hair down and go crazy and enjoy the yolk of an egg. He had bought all the new books that were published which were brought to him by Elizabeth. He'd examine them, mostly he'd reject them, others he would study. And his time, it was said, was spent in reading, meditation and prayer. During this time, 
he grew his beard and hair long and wore a robe. Sounds a bit like Gandalf. And apparently he was very generous and expended a great part of his income in acts of charity. Though how is a mystery if, as we've heard, he had no communication with human beings for 44 years. He died on the 29th of October in 1636 and was buried in St. Charles Cripplegate. Elizabeth herself, strangely, died just a few days before him. He never saw his daughter or his wife or his friends after that night when he fled from his ancestral home in Lincolnshire and came to live in London. A poem written about him, a tribute after his death, says, God had increased his basket and his store, and he therefore gave freely to the poor. There was to him no greater recreation than fasting, praying, reading, meditation. He closely kept himself from all men's sight. On all occasions, his mind would write. His life he led for 40 years and more, besides the 40 spoken of before. Full four and 40 years, t'was just so many. And in that time, was never seen by any. His hair was grown, as is figured here, that he much like a hermit did appear. Though he be dead and gone, yet let his name forever live with never dying fame. And that, my friends, is the story of London's greatest introvert, Mr. Henry Welby, the hermit of Grub Street. Stop, 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 stop. No, 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 no. It doesn't taste right, does it? There's something not right in the story. I'm a storyteller. I'm sure you love stories too, right? Does this sound right to you? It doesn't smell right to me. Let's back up the truck. Let's just think about this for a minute, okay? You know, I can imagine that Henry Wilby's brother tried to kill him. I mean... Let's be honest, families, we don't all get on. Things happen like that. I can imagine if that did happen, it would cause you a terrible shock. If my brother tried to kill me, I'd be upset. It might even induce some sort of psychic breakdown. It might even just about make you think, I'm not going to have anything more to do with humans. As Nick Cave said, people, they just ain't no good. I suppose just about conceivable that it might make you think... I'm going to be a hermit. But what's inconceivable to me is that you would choose to be a hermit in London, in Grub Street, outside Cripplegate. That had to be one of the noisiest, busiest places in one of the noisiest, busiest cities in the entire world. It was filled with people. It was filled with brothels and theatres and games and gambling and ne'er-do-wells and criminals, people who might prey on a rich old man living in a large house. It was also a place where there was black death and plague and disease. Is it really the sort of place that you would choose to be a hermit? And okay, your brothers tried to murder you. But would you really turn your back on your friends, on your wife, on your beloved daughter? It's not very kind to them, is it? Well, I think I know what you were thinking. You were thinking, well, come on then, 
what actually happened. Well, it's true, I do have some theories about Henry Welby, and I'm going to tell you them, all three of them. And the third one I can tell you, if it's true, will change the course of literary history. It would solve one of the greatest puzzles of Shakespearean academic study. It will catapult me onto the stage of cultural celebrity, allow my inner extrovert to finally range free. But I'll come to that in a minute. Um, let's begin with my first theory. Let's go back to that day when Henry Welby was walking in the fields and encountered his brother, and they had a huge, almost fatal argument. Could it not have been a possibility that in fact Henry Welby's brother did shoot him and did murder him, that he concealed the body and then headed to Henry Welby's house, where he wrote a letter to Henry's wife and daughter and friends, signed Henry Welby, claiming that he was going to become a hermit and that he left immediately and headed to London, where he set up a house on Grub Street and paid people, servants, etc., to keep his secret so that he could live out his life in some comfort, in some profligacy. After all, where better to head to if you are a profligate than Grub Street with its brothels and theatres and gaming parlours? Henry Welby's brother did disappear from the official account. And yet, Henry Welby's will was made out to his brother's son, not to his own daughter. Why? Now for my second theory. You may have heard of that contemporary of Henry Welby, John Dee, the English mathematician, astronomer, astrologer, occult philosopher, mage, wizard, and advisor to Queen Elizabeth I. He devoted much of his time to magic, sorcery, science, alchemy, divination, and philosophy. He even employed the use of what you might call a familiar, Edward Kelly, a scryer, to help him crystal gaze, to act as an intermediary between Dee and the angels and the spirits. But it was a dangerous time to follow such practices. Matthew Hopkins, the self-styled witchfinder general and his cohorts, executed over 300 people accused of witchcraft, often in the area of England, near to Henry Welby's home in Lincolnshire. So could it be that Henry Welby himself, like John Dee, was a mage, was a magician, a practitioner of the magical arts, who, feeling the pressure of Matthew Hopkins, decided to flee his home and to take refuge in secrecy and solitude in London, in a part of London where he could obtain all the latest books and manuscripts and grimoires, for his secrets, that is, and where, behind a locked door, he could carry out magical experiments. He could, perhaps, contact the spirits. It's very interesting in the description of Henry Welby. It says that in 44 years, he never saw another human creature. But what about other creatures? Why did he need such a big house? And who were the mysterious servants and retainers said to occupy that house, but who had no apparent function there? And after all, who was Elizabeth, the little old lady who attended him so faithfully, who was always described as old from the moment he took residence to the moment he died? 
A witch's or a magician's familiar may be an animal such as a cat, but may take the form of a human, an intermediary, serving their master till just a few days before they die. Could Elizabeth not have been the familiar of the wizard of Clerkenwell? Well, you may be thinking that's all a bit far-fetched. Well, you ain't had nothing yet. To the only begetter of these ensuing sonnets, Mr. W.H., all happiness and that eternity promised by our ever-living poet. Such is the dedication at the beginning of Shakespeare's sonnets, first published in 1609, and which contain some of the greatest lines of love ever written. Of all my loves, this is the first and last, that in the autumn of my years has grown, a secret fern, a violet in the grass, a fine leaf where all the rest are gone. Would that I could give all and more my life. You are my sun and stars, my night, my day, my season, summer, winter, my sweet spring, my autumn song, the church in which I pray, my land and ocean, and all that the earth can bring. That dedication at the beginning of the sonnets to the mysterious Mr. W.H. has had scholars and academics in a terrible tiz for hundreds of years arguing who was Mr. W.H. Was he Shakespeare's secret lover? Now I'd like to ask you, my friends, is it possible that Mr. W.H. was really Mr. H.W.? And is it possible that the reason that Mr. Henry Welby turned his back on his friends and his family and all his society and came south to live discreetly in London was to be near Mr. William Shakespeare? For we know that he loved Shakespeare's books and we know that his house was just around the corner from a theatre controlled by Shakespeare. And is it possible that the reversal of the initials H.W. to W.H. was a blind, a disguise, backslang to conceal the identity of the subject of a love that dare not speak its name. What do you think? You can let me know. Leave a comment below or mail me hello at tuesdaywell.com it's always lovely to hear from friends, introverts or extroverts. And I trust that you will live in harmony with your family and friends till the end of your days. And do come back soon to listen to more strange stories and songs on Radio Clerkenwell, 666 FM. <laughs>